This week's episode is brought to you by FOCO USA. FOCO is the official face covering of the Iowa Hawkeyes, and if you've been watching Iowa football at all this year, you've seen the new Hawkeye face coverings and neck gaiters that the players and coaches have been wearing, and FOCO was even nice enough to send some out to myself and Thad, and they look great, and they're definitely the most high-quality face mask that I've had since this whole thing started, and if you wanted to grab one for yourself, feel free to head over to FOCO.com and even tell them that the All Eyes crew sent you. What's up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome back to the All Eyes Podcast. And, you know, we actually do have some stuff to talk about today. Um, we've got some draft declaration news, transfer news, and even ESPN released some early college football rankings for next season. So, you know, there's some things that we can definitely hit on in this episode. But, you know, first and foremost, let's touch base with Thad. You know, how's the basketball coaching season going? How's parenting life? You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, start with parenting since episode one, that was probably the biggest part of it. Uh, three-year-old is sleeping a little bit better, um, does not enjoy going to sleep, but at least will stay in bed right now, which is an improvement. She just won't keep running after me needing things. So a little <laughs> bit of improvement there, but uh, she does wake up pretty early most days and wants to get going. So that part, especially right now during basketball season, could improve. We were on the road last night, so didn't get home till around 11 o'clock. So I could use uh, her sleeping in a little bit better. But all in all, um, it, things going really well. Basketball season's going really well uh, for us. And enjoying getting to hear little bits of uh, Hawkeye football news. And unfortunately, just got the news about the Iowa basketball game being postponed against Michigan State. So kind of bummed about that, but uh, ready to go for the week. Yeah, that was like the really big first hit of Iowa's basketball season with the Michigan State news coming out. And, you know, that's such an anticipated game, even with Michigan State, maybe not necessarily, you know, playing up to the reputation of past Michigan State teams. But I still think that they're figuring out and they're a talented team. And that's going to be a fun matchup to watch, regardless of what year it is. And, you know, it's kind of, yeah, it's a bummer that, you know, that's one game that maybe doesn't come back on the schedule or if they can't find a time and one less game that we get to see with Luca. I'm going to try to stay as positive as I can about it, that I'm glad we're having a season at all. And you could look at it a couple different ways. Yeah, missing a game or two. Um, hopefully it doesn't come back to bite them in terms of a Big Ten Conference championship. You know, if you miss a game that maybe you win. So percentage points wise hopefully that doesn't come back and haunt them but i i'm just enjoying the fact that for the most part this is the first time you know we're in january it's the first time a game has been uh, postponed or affected by this so the fact that we've gotten these games in so far has been really good and it doesn't seem to be a massive outbreak more one of those things where they're being precautionary there were a couple michigan state players that tested positive and Obviously, there's still those players are getting tested and the team is getting tested every day. But the fact that um, maybe a positive test doesn't show up for a couple days, put Michigan State on hold, and that includes the Iowa game until they know who for sure has it, how they can quarantine, and just keep the season and 
in general going as long as possible. Yeah, and you know, the college football season for Iowa kind of ended on a sour note, but throughout the regular season, you know, there wasn't two game or two week stretches where Iowa wasn't playing a game because of, you know, COVID outbreaks on a given team, which is a really big testament to how they handled it and just how lucky they were because I mean, every single team across college football this season was just kind of getting hammered and they would play one game, then three weeks off and then another game. And it just felt like so, you know, sporadic, especially like Ohio state, you know, and some of these SEC teams too. Um, and college basketball has been the same thing. You know, Villanova hasn't played in, I feel, I feel like three weeks. It feels like the Paul wasn't able to play until week six of the college basketball season or whatever it was. And, you know, Iowa basketball has just kind of been rolling around. They, you know, they played their non-con schedule um, against teams that other teams were canceling just out of precautionary measures, and it didn't come back to bite them. So, you know, with this being the first kind of hit to their basketball season, I think that's, as Iowa fans, we're kind of spoiled in that regard because it's been kind of, you know, smooth for the most part, and a lot of these outbreaks aren't happening with Iowa at, at all. Uh, big kudos to the players, the coaching staff, the support staff. And we've mentioned this before, but it takes a lot to keep this thing rolling the way they have. And you mentioned, you know, players kind of isolating themselves at, at where they live or hotels during the football season, trying to keep themselves away from other people. And they've sacrificed a lot to get through this season. And, and I shouldn't say to get through it at this point, but to keep this season rolling. So a lot of credit goes to them to being cautious and um, when you have a team like that and a team like this basketball team seems so together and seems so to play for each other, you know, not just play with each other, but to play for each other and to have this team the way they are um, in this together, they don't want to disappoint, let somebody down. So they are on, you know, as strict a protocol as making sure they want to do right by the team. So kudos to them. Uh, they've been great. There's said this one uh, hiccup so far, but hopefully it's, either the last or one of very few. Yeah, you know, another team that plays really well together is Alabama. <laughs> and that was on display on Monday because that was a beatdown against an Ohio State team who had just wrecked Clemson a week before. I mean, if that doesn't show you the tiers of college football this season and just the tiers of college football most seasons when you get to that top two echelon, it's crazy, man. I, I mean... Alabama was just blowing up Ohio State's offensive line every single snap. And that's a group of, you know, four stars and five stars and high school All-American type guys. And the running game for Ohio State, they just looked like so slow out there and it lacked so much juice. And every single hit was a solo tackle, it felt like, or we're getting swarmed and it was being successful. And, you know, Justin Fields held his own. He made a lot of great throws in that game, but it just kind of felt like, the the silver lining or you know this one guy's doing it all out there because the defense was getting slaughtered by Alabama from the jump um, I mean those two running backs for Alabama Robinson and Najee Harris they they just don't look like they're on the same playing field um, you know as they, they should they shouldn't be on the same field together it's almost like when you watch a five-star recruit uh, going up against, you know, lower 2A competition or something in high school, and he's just Mack trucking his way through the end zone, throwing dudes off him. That's just kind of how it felt like watching Najee Harris run. And to see that against Ohio State's crazy. Ohio State is an extremely athletic and talented team, but Alabama 
like you said, they're just, they play at a different pace. You know, even it's just amazing to watch them. That run game, their physicality and, and Ohio state was doing everything, trying to create negative plays. They were really shooting gaps. And then Alabama took advantage of it with some play action and some different things, getting Harris, the ball out, um, outside on pass in their pass game, but also those quick slants as linebackers were trying to fill gaps and, and try to stop the run game. But just the general feel you get from that is just the pace that Alabama plays at in terms of the physicality at the point of attack and when their playmakers get the ball in space. It's just something special to watch. And that team is so talented. It is very well coached. You know, they play three-phase football, I, just everything you'd want to see in a football team. And as you said, just to show that they're just a tier above everybody this season, sort of like how LSU was last year. I mean, there's just so much talent across the board. Um, and this Alabama team, in my opinion, is much better coached um, with the little things. The, the LSU team was so talented, and um, obviously they were well coached. They have both coordinators going on to bigger jobs. But Alabama just, holy cow, that was impressive, that entire game. Yeah, and you know, there's always a lot of SEC hate um, every single year by, t- uh, by people who like teams outside of the SEC, right? And a lot of that, I think, is justified in a sense. But one thing that I think holds true and is kind of not talked about by those people that are giving the criticisms to the SEC is they oftentimes have the best team in college football they might not be the the deepest team or have the toughest road to get to that, you know, championship point or those New Year's Six Bowls or, or the college football playoff. But the talent there is undeniable. I mean, you watch this Alabama team smoke the SEC schedule and they're like, you know, who have they played? But you see them play Notre Dame and treat Notre Dame just like worse version than Ohio State on Monday. It's it's crazy because those are two of the top four teams in college football. You know, they're not just throwing out these, you know, non-conference schedule Michigan teams or, you know, kind of the lower tier power five teams. These are the top echelon of college football and they're just running through them and asserting their will in every single phase of the game. Sometimes that bothers me when, when we talk about this college football playoff and they talk about, well, what's their resume? What have they done? This and that. And I get it. It's a phrase and something they've really taken from selection Sunday for the March for March Madness basketball tournament. Well, what's a resume? Well, college football, especially this year, but college football is a lot different than college basketball. You have a much smaller group of games to play. And from that, at least, especially for Big Ten teams, you have a much fewer number of non-conference games. And if you're an SEC school, you have eight conference games, but they're going to fill one or two of those other spots with really low-level opponents um most of them will claim hey we need this rest our conference that that you can debate that i get Mm -hmm. it but to me it's not about resume it's about getting the best teams in there and over the last several years the best team in college football has come from the sec and you can argue their depth of the league you can argue a lot of things but the truth is the best team alabama typically is in that group one of the best teams comes from there, and there are a variety of reasons for that, and you can go through all of that. But what we saw from Alabama was just an absolute elite and high-level performance of every part of football. And 
really fun to get to watch. And one thing I enjoy about the championship game and the playoff games is you get the opportunity to watch different parts. So you get sky cam view. You might get an all 22 Mm -hmm. that you get to watch. And those to me as a football fan and somebody who really likes to see not just follow the ball, but what really is happening is one of the few chances all year that you get to watch that and, and watch it live. You know, one of my favorite things from, you know, those alternate streams that they offer for the national championship games and now the college football, like um, the first opening round games is the the coaching kind of war room that they do because you learn so much terminology and just the way these guys think that are really great coaches. My favorite guy that went on there in recent memory was uh, Dino Babers, who, you know, has really no application to, um, you know, Iowa analysis because he is so different in just the way he thinks and the way he approaches the game. But the things that he says and the terminology he uses eventually can be a- applicable to Iowa just from a conceptual standpoint and just the way the game's adapting. And, you know, how do you defend that if you're, um, you know, Iowa or in that kind of matchup with a team that is similar to a Dino Babers run offense? And I always DVR those because it's just it's one of my favorite things that uh, ESPN has put on and. Um, I can't remember when they started doing that. I feel like it's been quite a while, but it's always one of my favorite things to do. I always make an emphasis to rewatch it after the day, and I'll even rewatch it a couple times and just take notes because there's a lot of great guys that go on there. Gary Patterson was on there one year. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the cool ones that they've had on there. I think Urban, uh, maybe not Urban Meyer. I think it maybe was Dabo Sweeney, Um, you know, five, six years ago or something like that. But yeah, I I love those alternate streams a lot. Yeah, they bring up a lot of great things, but you mentioned a couple names with with those guys, and then all of a sudden you get the offense versus the defensive coach, and they're talking (laughs) to each other about, okay, you know, we're in this situation, we think you're going to do this, or we're, we're expecting to see this, or we want you to get into this situation. And to pick up those things and see what those guys are thinking, and how really... Um, those coaches and you know we like to watch the game but those guys are truly one to two plays ahead on everything like everything is about what's coming next it's not about so much there or if a play doesn't work well was the design there hey watch that one uh the coach upstairs is going to notice that the safety stepped up on this be ready for them to come back to that look and they're going to take advantage of the safety and how he's reading it and we saw that from alabama uh, in that game, all of a sudden they they adjust an alignment and they get uh, they get a guy you know just going to streak down the field and all of a sudden um, a linebacker's chasing you know and and they get him in that situation where okay we know based off of this alignment this is how you are going to try to match up and we're going to take advantage of that or we're going to take advantage of the way your safeties react to play action and things like that so those I really enjoy the alternate streams and the different things we get when we get to the college football playoff and despite having such a crazy season to still get that uh, was a lot of fun. Yeah. You said it, they spot things so fast. It blows my mind. Like when I'm doing analysis over Iowa games, I have to put it in 0.5 slow motion. Um, I'm monitoring or taking note of the personnel groupings and, you know, uh, just like the formations that they line in pre-snap and I have it on pause they're doing it all live. It's processing in their brain. And as the plague goes on, there's like, oh, watch this player. Uh, <laughs> this, this is what's going to happen here. It's just, it's so crazy 
how on top of it they are. But I always love that there's always every single year one or two coaches that just goes kind of mute. And it just, you know, it makes me feel good because it's not like I feel like I can relate to their their position. You know, they're in a room full of guys who are very, very smart. And they're just like, I'm just going to be quiet and not I'm just going to come pipe in just in short little spurts. I'm, I think I'm going to let them run the show. <laughs> and you get a, a little insight to how those coaches operate. And I've been around different co- coaches and in, in mostly at college basketball level, attending practices and things like that. And you get such a variety of the way guys run a practice. And you see those personalities on those shows. You see the guy that's that's up there talking about every little detail, that's going into everything, that's really holding court. And you get the others that sit back. And you go to a college practice, whether it's football, basketball, any of those, and those sort of coaches, those traits show up. You know, you'll have a basketball coach or somebody that he runs practice. He's telling everybody what to do. He's running it. The assistants are just kind of auxiliary guys at this point. And then you have other coaches where really the assistants are running everything. They're running the drills. They're doing um, a lot of the, you know, talk off to the side, the coaching, the details. And the head coach is just kind of sitting back, organizing it all. Maybe he talks to one of the coaches who then talks to somebody else. So you get to kind of see those insights and it's not to say that one way is better than another, but it's just interesting. You get those personalities and I'm sure on the recruiting tra- trail, those things show up as well. And you talked about uh, Dino. He's a guy that was really popular on the recruiting trail. And all of a sudden you saw um, recruits pop up interested in that system out of nowhere, really. Yeah, you can really tell which guys are charismatic not just from, you know, talking football perspective, but just their personalities, because there's a lot of like, you know, side banter when they're doing those kind of shows. And you can just be like, you know what? I understand why some players or a high school guy would gravitate towards playing for that that coach. You know, not only just because he's a smart guy, all, all these guys are smart guys, but just the added level of being charismatic and, you know, methodically talking through things and, and, and expressing your point in a, you know, articulate way in a clear way. It's really cool to watch because yeah, it's, it's an insight that as college football fans, we don't really get, you know, we get the Kirk Ferentz press conferences where he lets loose a little bit, but we never really get to see him in his environment where he's talking football, you know, bantering off with, you know, some other smart football guys Um, You know, we get the clinic footage, which is rare, by the way, of Kirk, but that's just him talking. You know, he'll he'll like poke fun at the audience or talk to the coaches in the audience, but it's not like a conversation like that is. And that's just an insight that, you know, that that's what happens every single year in every single college football program behind the scenes. You know, they get in the coaches rooms, they talk about their strategies, um, they implement things, they talk about what they want to change. And these kind of discussions take place in house. So it's really cool to see it with all these guys who are on the top echelon of college football. Yeah. And, and they always find guys that specialize in different things, you know, so maybe in one of those games, you have a spread off- offense. So you might get somebody like a Gus Malzahn in there talking about things that he's looking at, or, you know, all of a sudden you've got these defensive, you know, maybe it's a, somebody with these blitz packages or these drop coverages so you have somebody kind of giving a little insight into how they're viewing the game and what sort of adjustments they're making, what sort of calls and reads they're making. And then you also get just get the perspective of 
what sometimes looks easy on to us, you know, watching on a 2D screen, when you figure the space and the, where those guys are, all of a sudden you get a true picture of what are those special plays. Like, hey, the quarterback made an outstanding pass. You don't realize how little space there is here. You don't realize how long that pass is, or you don't realize how small that window is. And you get those insights when you get to watch from that perspective and you get to hear them really break down why it is so hard to do some of the things that these guys are doing because they're putting on a show. They are high-level athletes playing at the top of their game. You know, absolutely. Um, as far as the game itself, what were your thoughts on just how that played out? Because, you know, we talked about a little bit where Justin Fields kind of balled out and did his thing, and some of the Ohio State receivers had some moments. Even some of the – even Sean Wade the, uh, and the defensive backs for Ohio State had some moments. But – you know, from it just kind of felt over at the half. And, um, you know, what were your thoughts when you were watching that game? Well, leading into it, you find out a couple Ohio State players are going to be out on the defensive front. And when you play a team um, as physical and as multiple as Alabama, that already puts you behind quite a bit. And then early in the game, Trey Sermon goes down. So a guy who has had success, you know, when he was at Oklahoma and now over these last couple of games with Ohio state was really hitting his stride and you take that away. And anytime you're taking a piece away of, you know, option one or two from a team, it really puts them behind and, and puts them in a tough and compromised spot. And if you're going to play somebody like Alabama and you're in a compromised position like that, it's just not going to go well. And Alabama just has too much firepower. Uh, their defense is good, but what part of what makes their defense better is they have the offense on the other side. So they can take some chances. Or, look, we know the other team has to try to keep up with us. So if it's a, a third and short or, or a fourth and fourth down and they're going for it, we know that they're going to probably have to be aggressive. Hey, it's second and short. Be ready for a shot play here because the other team knows we need touchdowns, not field goals. And it just puts that, it gives your defense that added bonus of knowing that they have the opposing offense has to try to keep up with the points that your offense is putting up. Yeah. And it's kind of cool to see like um, the styles of the conferences in these college football playoff games, because the big 10 feels like a conference that plays kind of together football. And then the sec is sort of a conference where there's so much talent because of how well they recruit at the top. And when they put it together and it's just a talent mesh with a good game plan and an executed game plan. And it's all meshing. That's kind of when you see what this Alabama team was and what this LSU team was last year, um, where they just can't really do any wrong. Cause they're so talented. Even when they make a misstep at cornerback, like you said, be, being aggressive, you know, trying to jam off the line of scrimmage or trying to jump in front of these routes. They can feel confident doing that because if they give up a touchdown, I mean, they gave up what, um, 28 points to Ohio state or something like that, like around 30. And it didn't matter. I mean, they lost by 28, 24, 30 points. That's insane to think about because if Ohio state's putting up 28 points, you think they're at least in the game, right? <laughs> yeah. They just put so much pressure on you to, to keep up with them and to score and, and to be efficient. And then all of a sudden you get in those situations where if you're the head coach or the, you know, especially the head coach, you get in some situations like, look, our defense has been on the field forever. 
and Alabama started off with those long drives, and the Ohio State defense was on the field forever. So now all of a sudden, as an offensive coordinator or a head coach, you might be telling your coordinator, like, look, we have to play with a little bit less tempo maybe for a moment. We need to get try to get the run game going. So now instead of just, hey, what's our best play here, you're also trying to figure out, well, how are we going to help our defense? And that happened at one point, I think uh, – Ohio State kind of had closed the gap maybe to 14 or so. Uh, Bama scores, and then Ohio State gets the ball, and like three plays later, scores a touchdown. Well, now the defense has to go out there, out there again. Reminder, they're shorthanded, a couple D linemen out. And they've been, they just got done having to try to defend like a 16-play drive. And in under four minutes of clock time so not game time but like literally three or four minutes of actual time you're back out there against this Alabama offense and it's like well no surprise Alabama is going to march it down and score right away again you know I thought the biggest telling thing with with that in in regards to that was right before halftime when Ohio State had the ball with about you know 130 120 on the clock they were at their own 20 yard line sure but they were being they wanted to get to halftime they didn't want any more. They were like, we don't want Alabama to get the ball back at all. We don't want to force a turnover. They just, that's crazy to think about that Ohio State, a team with a potential, you know, top two pick at quarterback, you know, great talent all over that receiving core. Um, they just said no more, no moss. <laughs> you know, we're waving the white flag for the first half. I That's so crazy to think about because that's not how Ohio State would react to any Big Ten team no matter how that game was going, if they had 130 or 120 left on the clock right before halftime to narrow the, narrow the gap from a double-digit score lead to a one-possession game. You get in against a team where you, you're there and you realize, look, we're outgunned. You know, we're outgunned yeah. in this one. What are we going to do? And it changes. All of a sudden, everything you do changes. The way you call the game, the way you're trying to think through plays, everything about it changes. And on top of that, it's the biggest game of the year. So all those things factor in. And, and honestly, you would never see, almost never see Ohio State do that. But it was probably the right move. Like, hey, we got to get to halftime. We got to try to figure something out because nothing we're doing is working to slow this offense down. So can we do anything as a way to get a turnover, a way to get, we need two stops. Can we get two stops, you know, or consecutive stops of any way? And it just wasn't going to happen. And they're like, we need to get to, to halftime, sort this out, and find any way to just slow them down at all. Yeah, you know, Ohio State kind of made a little bit of a run um, in that late third quarter, early fourth quarter. I think you were talking about earlier with, like, the three, four-play drive, a super quick touchdown um, for Ohio State, and then immediately Alabama just answers without um, uh, Devontae Smith on the field. I mean, it didn't matter. Whether it was John or not John Robinson, uh, the backup running back for Alabama, Robinson, number four. Whether he was on the field or Najee Harris was on the field, those dudes were getting eight yards a pop and then sometimes breaking off, you know, a 30-yard run. Um, and it, it just – there was no way Ohio State was ever going to get a stop against those guys. You know, when they got down in the goal line situations, I was just like, they're they're kind of just biding their time. You know, eventually Alabama's going to break in the end zone, and they always did. Uh, and that, that Yeah, the, watching it unfold like that, after Ohio State just put it on Clemson, it was kind of almost a surreal kind of feeling. And it, is it one of those things? And I don't, I don't totally abide 
kind of by this thought process, but you had all the talk going into the Ohio State Clemson game of, you know, where Dabo ranked Ohio State and should they be in this playoff? And they were so dominant in that game. And is it one of those things where those guys, you know, you know, the national championship's a bigger game, but do you kind of exhale and all of a sudden, like, okay, we kind of did what we really wanted to? Not that you don't want to win the national championship game, but there's so much emphasis sometimes on, hey, we got to win the first one and here's what they said about us and let's show we belong. So part of me is like, is that happening? But the other part of me is just like, look, you ran into Alabama. They're the best team in the country by a wide margin. You can be as prepared as you want. You can have all the right things drawn up. But when the other team is better than you, over the course of the game, they're just going to score more. And I think there's something to expending your emotional high the previous week in just college football or even college basketball, um, whether it's the previous game. You know, when you have a big win over a rival team or a team that, you know, that's built up like that Clemson-Ohio State game was, and there was just so much energy from Ohio State in that one. And it, it a lot of that's just really expended because, you know, leading up to that Ohio State-Clemson game, you have about a month block of time from your previous game, right? And then immediately um, after you win that game, you're playing Alabama in the national title, where they just had a cakewalk against a team that everybody knew they were going to beat. They probably knew they were going to beat. And Ohio State already kind of felt vindicated for beating Clemson because a lot of people were writing them off and saying, oh, we're about to get Clemson-Alabama uh, 3.0. And obviously that didn't happen, but you have to wonder how much just emotional energy Ohio State kind of expended in that game. Yeah, and all of a sudden you get a couple guys out and it just compounds. And as I said earlier when those things add up against a team that is, is simply better, more talented, just better than you are, you know, everything is going to have to go right for the game to go your way. You know, you're already behind the eight ball. Things are already kind of falling the other way. You know, you're going to have to get some crazy turnovers. You're going to have to get something, you know, maybe it's early, uh, just something to go your way to kind of get a momentum, but just to put you in that lead advantage. Yeah, and before we get too off off the track, I, this is an Iowa football uh, podcast. We know that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about some Iowa football news. Let's make that transition before, because we could talk about football no matter what the topic is for hours. Um, and you guys already know that because these podcasts probably go way longer than they probably should. But um, Koi Kronk, he did announced that he's declaring for the NFL draft. And that came a little bit as a surprise to some people um, just because of the last two years being injury ridden and he didn't really get a fair shot because of the injuries last year at right tackle. And a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, you know, with the Lyric gone, maybe he can factor in there somehow and contribute to this Iowa team. He decided to forego that sixth year of eligibility and he's going to the NFL draft. So I guess aside from trying to look into this guy's soul, and trying to find the underlying explanation for him leaving Iowa. Um, you know, what are thought your thoughts strictly from just a football perspective on how he's going to translate or make that transition? Yeah, it's really too bad. We didn't get to watch him at Iowa as a healthy player because, uh, after we found out that he was transferring as a grad transfer to Iowa, I went back and watched some of his film and he played left tackle over 40 starts at Indiana at left tackle. And, showed really good feet, good hand placement, 
was an exceptional tackle. You know, a guy that you could say, okay, I can see this guy at the next level. You know, there were film clips of him going up against guys like Chase Young, going up against Joey Bosa, going up against those high-level sort of guys at, at different Big Ten schools, you know, against the defensive ends from Penn State, guys like that. And, you know, did he get beat sometimes? Yeah, but he held his own and, and showed great footwork and good hands. And we come to find out, you know, we don't know it right away, but really he was never fully healed. You know, it's a big guy coming from a lower leg injury, you know, foot, ankle, those sort of things. And it just didn't work out. So as an Iowa fan, I kind of wanted to hope, I was just hoping, you know, will he come back? Do we get to see a healthy Koi Kronk? Because I think he could be a really good player could help Iowa and help his draft stock. So he decides to go, you know, as you said, peer into his soul. All right, what's your thinking? (laughs) My guess is it's a guy that, okay, I've played football for this long. I've been dealing with injuries. Um, I'm ready to go see if I can make it and make some money doing this. And if not, maybe move on with my life. Um, But what do I think? I think what I saw as a player at Indiana um, a guy that could make an NFL roster. I, I don't see him as a starter right away. Definitely not right away. Maybe down the road. But a guy that could be, you know, a backup outside, could maybe even play inside with his size as well. Uh, but we don't know how he's, how rehab has gone and how he's going to look to those guys. And, and our team's going to have injury concerns. You know, is he going to be a medical red flag? We don't know. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if he will get an invite to the combine or not but he will be a part of Iowa's pro day and he's going to get a shot just because of, you know, there's not a lot of guys at coming out in any class that have the resume that he has, you know, that much playing experience at the, at a power five level, like the big 10, um, which is, you know, a premier conference for tackles and offensive line play. And, you know, looking good, not just being out on the field and being, you know, the guy on a, a really bad offensive line that was just out there because he had to be out there. He performed well. He shined at Indiana and he had some moments early on in the season for Iowa. You know, he got beat a couple times by George Karloftis, but guess what? Everybody did. Um, and th- like you said, he wasn't even fully healed. And so for me, just based on what I saw at Indiana and based on his resume, he's going to get a legit shot at the NFL level. Um, he's going to be a UDFA probably or a tryout guy, but he's one of those guys that just screams, I'm going to land on a practice squad and because of so many injuries at the NFL level to tackle spot, he's going to get called up at some point. He's going to latch on and hold on if he does truly love football, which, you know, you can always make that, um, that assessment on any player if they truly love the football or if they're just, you know, there because they've always played it and they're just, you know, trapped in that box. But you have to understand tackle play at the NFL level sucks. You know, there, it's not a deep position. Nobody likes carrying that weight and being a backup on the practice squad for more than two years. You know, it's not healthy being that heavy. And, you know, when you see NFL guys, offensive linemen retire, there's a reason why so many of them run marathons and immediately lose 80 pounds in weight. It's because it's not natural to keep up a 300 plus pound frame on a 6'5 or 6'4 body. Um, you know, you see it in Joe Thomas, uh, you see it in Alan Fanica who lost immediately 90 pounds and now is a cyclist. <laughs> it's just those kind of things where if he does truly love football, I think that he has enough talent to latch on and hold on to a spot 
for four, five, six years, maybe even more. Um, but you know, that's all the way up to him, I think. You mentioned that, and all I can think of is those pictures of Marshall Yonda just a couple yeah. months after he retired, and he looked like a totally different guy, and, and that was one of the baddest dudes in the NFL for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then there he is, you mentioned, out, out on his bike looking looking fit like he's been doing that forever. So as you said, that's a tough spot to live your life that way for a while, and uh, you know, it's a lot of work, and those guys you know, have to train and do everything else, and then as you mentioned it tackle now all of a sudden you've got to go against some of the premier athletes in the world playing outside linebacker playing defensive end and like hey good luck you know here's a here's a one-on-one matchup so i hope he gets a shot i hope he's first of all i hope he's healthy and i hope he gets Mm -hmm. that chance to show scouts and to show a team what he's capable of because he came to iowa and they put him in the lineup right away like hey this is our right tackle this is our guy so obviously the coaches at Iowa uh, had a lot of respect for what he was capable of doing. And we, unfortunately, we didn't get to see a lot of it. Um, I, I think he's got a chance to, you know, as you said, whether it's as a um, free agent, you know, undrafted, whether it's getting on a practice squad and working his way up to a game day um, roster spot, he has that opportunity. He has that skill set that he could do that. And it's just a matter of, do injuries go his way and do a, a couple other breaks? You know, does it work out for him? And now all of a sudden for Iowa, now it's just one less guy that you have coming back. Uh, that, again, it was a toss-up anyway, but another guy you don't have coming back that you've got to figure out what's our plan um, to fill that spot. Yeah, um, I absolutely agree. I And obviously we wish him the best of luck. Obviously, you know, it's not like a thing of we're mad because he didn't come back and all that kind of crap. I mean, he was a Hawkeye, you know, he, he came to Iowa because he wanted to come to Iowa and get better. You know, he left another power five school in the big 10 that had a heck of a year. Um, you know, they won what eight games, eight and two or whatever it was. They had a, it was one of the best years in Indiana football history. He willingly left that team to join Iowa because of the success that they've had at the tackle spot and on the offensive line. He wanted to get better. So that's really awesome that, he kind of shared his time with University of Iowa and just us as fans. Um, I guess some other news, though. Uh, Julius Brents has a landing spot. We He just announced that he's committed to Kansas State, which I think is a pretty good spot for him, just based on, you know, I haven't seen a lot of Kansas State defense in the past two or maybe three years. I can't remember when they had their last safety uh, prospect in the NFL draft. But they always put out a number of kind of rangy safety-type guys, And we talked about it, how he was kind of in a weird spot um, in Iowa's defense where he just kind of was a positionless kind of guy that they were trying to slot in at nickelback or a corner. And that's just not his true kind of position. I think Kansas State might offer a little bit a little bit better sort of outlook or projection for him if they are still in that kind of defensive structure. And, you know, he landed up in another uh, power five school, which is kind of cool. Yeah, the other thing that's going to be, you know, for him, if he wants to be a next level player is if you're in the Big 12, there's going to be plenty of film of you in coverage. You know, whether he's playing safety, whether he's playing corner, he's going to have to be in coverage and he's going to have to make tackles in the op- in open space. And that's something that uh, I thought he was really good tackler in the past and uh, he missed a few tackles early in the season this year. Um, but again, pretty small sample size. He wasn't outside of that first game. He wasn't in there a lot. So 
you know, you miss one tackle and it seems like a lot because you're only in there a little bit. But, you know, I think he's a good tackler. I think he has a chance, you know, to be an impactful player, especially with his size and how rangy he is. He can cause problems in that conference in coverage. Yeah, and another thing that that conference is known for with their safety play, you know, especially from teams like TCU and Oklahoma over the years, is those safeties are around the line of scrimmage and dropping back and blitzing and sort of acting as a multiple kind of threat so often. You know, they, I think they're the position that uh, West Virginia actually named their one of their safety spots is a spur linebacker safety kind of hybrid role. And essentially, you know, it's just kind of a four two five guy that moves all over the field and can play the Carl Joseph role of, you know, coming down in the box, laying the boom or just blitzing off, you know, from the nickel spot. And I think that's kind of where we had him slotted or pegged as that kind of player. But Iowa didn't really need that kind of player. Um, And so now you have this thing where you can watch as he transitions from a completely different defense in Iowa to a completely different defense in Kansas State. And now you have those two films to compare him when he, you know, if he ends up making that transition to the next level, you have two different conferences and two different, you know, film on this guy from two different seasons. So it's going to be interesting to watch him at Kansas State. And I, I'm, I'm pulling for him. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things I always enjoy getting to watch when the, you know, when somebody leaves a program, as long as they're in good standing, you know, how do they react? How do they perform at their next school? And as, as you mentioned with Koi Kronk, you know, I'm still going to be cheering for him. They spent their time in Iowa City trying to get better, being a Hawkeye, and, you know, somebody who, you know, guys that aren't getting in trouble, they're doing things the right way. So those guys want to play. So I never blame somebody who transfers that is behind some guys on on the depth chart because you put in all that work, you want to play. So hopefully he's able to go to K-State, get a lot of playing time, you know, show some film of what he can do. Because you guarantee somebody with a pedigree like that wants to play at the next level. So this is his opportunity to put out his film and and show what he can do. So I hope he plays really well. You know, I hope he's really successful there. And hopefully he picks off a few uh, Brock Purdy passes next year. That would be fun. Yeah, see, there we go. We found the edge on how we can cheer for Kansas State next year. Julius Brent's killing Iowa State. There we go. I love it. Um, in other news, ESPN did release some college football rankings. Um, you know, it's like the way too early kind of stuff. So USC is up there for no real good reason. And Iowa state's actually ranked at eighth on their ranking. And then Iowa comes in at 12. Um, I don't know if you saw this poll Thad, at all, but they had some interesting ones on there. What are your thoughts on just, I guess I was ranking spot at number 12, I'll try pulling up who's ahead of them. Yeah, I I kind of glanced at it. I haven't looked at it a lot, but I did see where Iowa State was. I did see where Iowa was. And, you know, it's one of those things that it's more of a reflection of how did you finish last year? And I think this Iowa team, that's about where the 2020 team ended the season, slotted in that kind of, they were playing like a top 15, top 12, top 10 type of team. So looking at next year, there's just a lot of unknowns. And do I think they could finish that high? Absolutely. Do I peg them? Do I think they're going to be a top 15 team right out of the gate? That I'm not so sure of. I, I have a lot of questions along the defensive front. Um, how are they going to be? And that's such an important role for this Iowa team. 
on offense, there's a lot of good pieces. You know, you return a quarterback, you return first team all conference running back. You've got some receivers that maybe will be in new roles, but have played a lot. You know, guys like Tyron Tracy and Nico Regani have a lot of catches in their career and have highlight moments. So you're bringing back those guys. You've got Sam Laporte at tight end. You've got obviously Tyler Linderbaum anchoring the offensive line. So you return some nice pieces offensively and you return some nice pieces on defense. You know, getting Zach Van Valkenburg back was a huge boost to this defense because you go from possibly losing the entire front four <laughs> to now at least getting somebody back that you can, I don't want to say rely on, but somebody that's a known commodity. Like we know what we're going to get out of him. And to pair that with those linebackers and the defensive backs, I'm really excited to see what this team could end up. It's, I, I expect it to be a typical Iowa team early in the season. You know, they're not, probably not going to be the same team they are come late October and November. And it might cause for a few losses early. They open the gate with some tough ones for the 2021 season. But I think by the end of the year, they're going to be getting kind of to that same spot. Yeah, and it's always interesting to me, well, especially this year, it was interesting to me just to see what the national perception was of how good this Iowa team was. Because, you know, they jumped out to two quick losses and sort of kind of fell off that national radar as, you know, being this team that was returning a lot of quality starters and had a lot of budding potential with Spencer Petras and guys like that. But as the season gone went on, obviously we talked about it every single week on the podcast. This team looked exceptional. They dominated every single matchup they were in, uh, almost, except for maybe Nebraska. And it's nice to see that Iowa, even without playing a bowl game and beating Mizzou, did get those, like, crazy spreads at the end of the year. You know, they were favored by 14 against Missouri, and now they're ranked 12th in a national poll despite only playing or going 6-2. and And, you know, just to name some teams that are around the Hawkeyes, just to give you an example of, kind of where they're being pegged nationally. So they're in front of the Oregon Ducks. They're in front of Notre Dame. Um, They're in front of Florida. And they're one spot behind the Cincinnati Bearcats, who nearly won a New Year's Six Bowl. And, you know, ahead of them, it's it's like the college football playoff teams, Texas A&M, Georgia, and then Iowa State, North Carolina, and a weird USC in Indiana. Um how good Indiana is, I don't know. Maybe this was a magical season for him, or maybe it was a sign of things to come, and, and you know, that program is getting back on track because maybe Allen's a pretty good coach. Yeah, Indiana's the one that I'm just not sure of, and I don't want to judge anything by the bowl game because obviously losing Penix Jr. totally changed that team, you know, and, and that's something you take away such a dynamic quarterback like that that it does change you know, the outlook of, of how they're going to perform in that bowl game. But that said, you go through their season and you watch what they did in the Wisconsin game. And again, Penix was out for that game, but no, but neither team did anything offensively really for that entire game. You look at the first game of the season and that game against Penn state and what looked like, Oh, this awesome game. We beat this, you know, Penn state who were expecting to be so good. Well, it turns out Penn state sucked. Yeah. You know, they were they were bad. That was a bad Penn State team. And especially at that point of the season. And yeah, the Ohio State game was was exciting, but you kind of start digging into it and the score in my opinion wasn't really a reflection of 
Ohio State was in control, it felt like, that entire game until, you know, kind of a couple little things at the end. And Ohio State was down a couple guys at certain spots. So, yeah, they, I mean, they played Ohio State really well, and that was kind of the one key. That was the best thing they did all year was play Ohio State close. Um, but, you know, you return a quarterback, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hype about, you know, Coach Allen and Penix at quarterback, and it's a team that has a uh, a nice recruiting base. I mean, you have Indianapolis, which has a lot of great football, and and the state of Ohio turns out a lot of great football, and right there, and you know, so they're in an area where they can recruit, and even if they're not getting the top tier in their area, there's a lot of really good players and a pretty small radius, so they can pick up those guys, and it is a team that could improve on that, but. I just don't see. I guess I have to. I have to see it again for from Indiana before I believe they're really that sort of team. Yeah, you know, so that that uh, that dive for the two point conversion to beat Penn State in Week One, it was eerily similar to when, uh, for me at least, just based on how the national media perceived it and how it was talked about and how they made shirts about it. Um, do you remember a few years ago when Texas was playing Notre Dame? And it was uh, it was like Shane Bouchelle versus Deshaun Kaiser and that kind of matchup. And Texas ends up winning in like triple OT. And uh, ESPN goes, Texas is back, folks. And then they go five and seven. That's <laughs> that's kind of how it felt like to me. Obviously, Indiana put together a good season. And this this was a much better team than that Texas team. But they kind of got more respect because of that win against Penn State. Just kind of like how Texas got respect for being Notre Dame when Notre Dame turned out to be bad and Penn State turned out to be bad. But coming into the year, those were two teams that are, you know, blue blood kind of programs with a lot of history and they were highly ranked coming in. And I think that affected the perception of how good they were the rest of the season, even though obviously we know how it turned out for Penn State. You just always have to take those first couple games with such a grain of salt because, as you said, we we just don't know. Like, you come in thinking Penn State's really good and it turns out they're not very good. And I would say the same thing after Iowa's lost to Northwestern. I'm like, oh, man, this is rough. Um, turns out Northwestern was really good, especially that defense. And the offense was creative enough to get enough points to win a lot of games. So it's one of those things that when you look back at the season, you know, what do we really see? Well, for Iowa, uh, first loss, the, the Purdue loss, we look back, that was a bad loss. You know, and, and there were a variety of reasons. Obviously, the turnovers those fumbles and the high uncharacteristic penalties and those sort of things. Northwestern should have Iowa won that game. In my opinion. Yeah. Do I think Iowa was better than Northwestern this year? Yeah. But when you look at the totality of the season, you see how it happened. You saw, we saw this Northwestern team give every other team they played troubles with their defense. You saw them find ways, you know, regardless of who's out there on offense, what's going on, they found just enough way, just enough ways to get points. So when you step back and look at it, Indiana's season was really defined by a win over a bad Penn State team and a, a loss that was fairly close, you know, score-wise in the end, <laughs> to a really good Ohio State team. And, you know, the, it's fair to judge, you know, they to their credit, they won their other games, you know, and that's what you have to do. I just don't see this team, that Indiana team being that level next year, but maybe they'll surprise us. 
Yeah, and you know, Indiana's had some years where they'll win seven games or make a bowl game unexpectedly when they had Tevin Coleman, for example. That was a big one. Um, and, you know, they, they've turned out some decent teams that can win games, but they just haven't experienced that long, sustained success. Even when they've had, you know, they've, they've been a pipeline for guys going into the NFL. They produce quite a bit of talent. And like you said, it's because they're in a kind of that prime spot next to Ohio, Indianapolis in their state, them being kind of seen as the flagship program of Indiana. But the second that Purdue started to rise up, and they were stealing some recruits, then you have that kind of battle right there. It becomes more interesting, and it'll be interesting to see if Allen is, you know, a one-off kind of coach where he has that one dream season, and then it kind of sinks, or if he can find a way to be a program builder and just reestablish, you know, this team that obviously has a lot of resources behind it. And I'm always a little little bit hesitant to fully endorse those coaches that are are that rah-rah guy. Yeah. And with him, I totally think it's authentic. Like I the, you know, some guys you feel like uh it's not really authentic. I, I totally feel like it's authentic with him and it might end up working. But I maybe it's just my personality. I'm a little hesitant to always say like long-term success, this is what it's gonna be, because long term it's not about getting up for big games. Like you can talk all you want about pregame speech and emotional, but when you play a full season, when you play these full games, that's really not going to be the difference. And you're not going to be able to draw that up all the time. So he seems like a great guy. You know, I, I would like to see, you know, them have success. I just don't think that's the tier they're at right now. Yeah. And I think you said it because the rah and the, the super enthusiastic charismatic or loud, passionate, motivational kind of speech coaches. If you're making all those, um, underdog speeches throughout your career as a coach, it means you're probably a bottom feeder who is over exceeding in one year of living, trying to build up for the big game. I mean, you look at like the Paul Rhodes of the world or Jerry kill, for example, I thought was one where, you know, he had some good teams, but he was always a guy who was saying, let's do it guys. We can get up for this game. Let's try to get the enthusiasm. And they could, those two coaches could pull upsets because they, you know, it's, it's a big thing in the basketball, this, this term this year, bring your own juice. Um, those coaches kind of enthusiasm, you know, bring enthusiasm to the team, especially when, you know, a game maybe doesn't get off to the right start and one splash play just turns the momentum. I know a lot of people hate that word too, but you know, I, it's kind of like one of those things where long-term you just got to see a development from the Rue Ra guy to, all right, let's go out and execute a game plan and have a functional game plan that we can execute week by week and adapt to changes. And I think it's, you know, the converse of that. Look at Iowa's sustained success under Kirk Ferentz. And are they playing in national championships? Have they, you know, haven't made the college playoff? But this is sustained excellence, really. And you could say, oh, it's happy with seven, eight wins. But go look at the history books for, for all of college football. There aren't a lot of teams doing that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the consistency that Kirk Ferentz runs his program. And that doesn't mean that he can't give an amazing speech because (laughs) I've heard from people like he can give some great speeches, but that can't be like the thing that you carry is this is what we do. You know, it's about what you do during the week to prepare. It's how organized is your program? How do you evaluate players? How do you evaluate, evaluate yourself as coaches? How do you go through that? So I just, 
Personally, I like the other side of it. I think that leads to sustained success. Maybe the highs, you could say the highs aren't as high, but the lows definitely aren't as low. And you want to be a great program. I don't want to have one or two great years. I want to be a great program. And I just think you have to have that consistency and kind of that level-headed nature. And we say it all the time, you know, as coaches is teams follow their coach. So if you get a guy that's bouncing all over the place, it's kind of manic and sometimes like the team will follow that. So when things are tense, when it's an end of a game and you need to be calm and, hey, this is what's going on. Here's our plan. Players feed, they'll feed off of that. If a coach is constantly complaining to officials, the team will follow that lead. I mean, so, so I think long-term, I just like what Iowa does a lot more. And I think that's why you see them finish in the top 20, the top 15 so consistently. Yeah. And a guy like Kirk, you can compare him to the Urban Myers of the world and the Nick Sabins of the world because they're all even keel and they're measured. You know, one of the guys that kind of, I guess, breaks that mold is Dabo Sweeney a little bit, but even he, you know, he keeps most more often than not sort of this even keel kind of persona. And he just plays it up as, you know, being a personable and likable younger guy sometimes, but more often than not, he's kind of like this even keeled measured person who has a sort of a methodical way of how he just handles regular discussions, which I, like you said, I think that feeds off into the players and, you know, bringing this conversation full circle. It's why guys go to play for those kind of guys. You know, they're not, they're not expending a lot of that emotional energy, you know, following this coach who's bouncing off the walls after a trick play touchdown or something like that. It's, you know, if we go three and out, all right, let's, let's get a defensive stop and then let's just get back to business on offense when we get the ball back kind of thing. You mean you don't want to go play for a coach that sprints at the end of the quarter? Is that, is that what you're saying there? I, I know of a certain coach that likes to go and sprint a lot of times. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, I don't buy that sort of thing. Um, you know, and if, but if a player, if that's what you're, they're into, those are the type of players you're going to get. And, and to tie this back to Iowa, I think they've done an outstanding job the last two, three, four years of evaluating the players and finding the guys that are going to fit well in their system, the way they coach, you know, they want, they want guys that love football and somebody had a great quote. I can't remember who it was now. Um, but do you love football or do you love being a football player? And those are two totally different things. And if you want to play football at Iowa, you have to love football, not being the football player. And that's something I think Iowa has done an outstanding job of evaluating who those guys are, getting them into the program, and then helping them become the best player they can be. Yeah, I think that was Joel. Well, at least I don't know where that quote originated from, but I know Joel Klatt recently tweeted it out. And I love that quote because it's so true. You know, there's certain guys who view themselves first as a football player. And there's certain guys who are just grinders and want to get better and are just truly invested in, you know, and are just trying to get better as a football player before the persona of what a fo- being a football player brings. Yeah. I, I love that quote from him. Yeah. I just think it's so apt in, in how you see these teams and you watch, you know, back to that national championship game and not to say Ohio state isn't this way, but you watch Alabama those guys love football, you know, and, and some of them, I'm sure they love being a football player and all of that, but those guys love football. And if you want to ha- have an outstanding team, a team that has a chance to do that, 
you have to have guys that are in that. And I, I think that's one of the reasons I have such high expectations and high hopes for this Iowa basketball team is you have guys that love basketball and love playing together. I mean, you get, obviously we saw, everybody saw the workout clips of Garza all summer. Um, but you see somebody like Connor McCaffrey who just constantly is grinding and does all of the little things that you need. And, and somebody like Jordan Bohannon who, who comes back from two hip surgeries and is still trying to find his way early in the season. But that guy is a gamer. I mean, he comes out, he is going to play, have the biggest moments, and he's going to be, you know, the best player in the best moments. And that's why part of me is so excited to see where does this Iowa basketball season end up? Because you have a group that loves basketball. I mean, you can't be diving all over the place like Keegan Murray unless you love basketball. And it's the same thing for football. You want to make, you want to see those guys, you know, somebody like uh, Tyler Linderbaum, when he's trying to chase down Tyler Goodson on an 80 yard touchdown run in the snow against Wisconsin. Like that is a love of football and a love of your teammates. And that's when those special seasons happen. Yeah. And I think this is a great time to wrap up the podcast, but like you said, this basketball team is just so fun to watch because they just feel there's no, there's no ego kind of centric dynamic to this team. It's so mesh and the ball movement's incredible. And so everybody can contribute in their own kind of special way. And one of my favorite moments watching them recently was in that Rutgers game when all the starters pretty much got subbed out and Aaron Euless comes in and Ugandale comes in and Keegan Murray is stepping up and they were, they had a plus, you know, score on the, like and differential just in those minutes that they were playing, and they played for about five or six minutes. They contributed some solid minutes in that game, and a game that Iowa won. And you know what I saw on Twitter was, why is Fran benching all the starters in the key moments of a tight game in the Big Ten? And those guys just showed up, and when you saw Aaron Euless make a play or Keegan Murray make a play, the bench, like Joe Wieskamp was getting crazy. Um, Everybody, CJ Frederick, Jordan Bohannon, all those guys were just losing their minds on the bench, and that just feels like one of those special teams that just only happens once every 20 years. And we get to watch the benches more this year without the crowd, but you want to see, you know, what a team truly thinks of each other. Watch the bench, you know, especially when those, the younger guys are kind of the backups are in, you know, if it's, if, if the bench, you know, if guys are sitting there and they're quiet and they, they'll stand and clap or do a little bit, but you get to see how much they enjoy playing with each other and how much they enjoy being teammates. And the best teams always have that. You go to state basketball tournament for high school. You go to the uh, college NCAA tournaments and, and watch, if you get a chance to watch that live, especially watch those benches and you get a really good feel for the type of team and teammates they are. And does that always equate to who wins? No. You know, if one team is just a lot better, they're going to win. But when you have a talented team like Iowa has, but the type of the type of chemistry that they have on and off the court, or at least what they seem to have, I don't know any of them personally, but <laughs> everything we, you know, everything we hear about them is that way. So, you know, unfortunately one game postponed, hopefully not canceled. Um, but I'm excited to get to watch them again because it's such a fun team to watch and, and we get to enjoy, you know, probable player of the year and a bunch of really good players. Yeah. And you know, we've always said it on almost every single podcast, I think, but right now Iowa fans are kind of spoiled. Caitlin Clark, Spencer Lee, Iowa basketball. 
you know, a lot of other great wrestlers too. It's just a fun time to be a Hawkeye fan. And there's going to be plenty of stuff for us to talk about, you know, moving forward, especially, you know, and just to follow from articles and things like that. And that's always a fun thing when you can get away from the football season and there's still stuff to talk about. You know, NFL draft comes along. There's going to be Iowa Hawkeyes to talk about. And that's just a sign of a well-run athletics kind of structure and just a good program in football. So, um, you know, with that said, we want to thank you all for checking out today's podcast as always. And unless that, do you have anything else you want to say? I think that we're just going to kick it off.